Welcome to Ag in Conversation, where Emily and Mavamway, two friends and agri-optimists from Otago, New Zealand, sit down weekly to digest the hottest topics in the world of ag, bringing a deeper level of discussion and understanding to the issues and opportunities faced by agriculture and rural communities both in New Zealand and around the globe. Hey Emily, how are you going this week? Yeah, good thanks. Mavamway had a good week it's been hot over here again um we've had some oh i've had some really great chats about work and yeah good networking and a few good um board meetings and things so yeah it's been a well it's already only wednesday and it feels like we've already lived a whole week how are you yeah. going yeah good thank you i actually walked into wrightson's on monday up in curao and i went in and i said to the ladies who worked there oh hey how are you going how has your week been and they both just fell about laughing and they're like Family, it's Monday morning. Like we haven't had a week yet. And I was like, oh well, uh, feels like I have. So <laughs> that'll give you an insight into my week. <laughs> I like to keep them entertained. Um, but yeah, no, good, good. We had a lovely weekend with the girls home, and um, Belle gave the local barrel race a go at Wanadi Rodeo, and bless her old old horse hobbled around and had a good old time so they made it round that was what mattered that oh, sounds awesome yeah we went and um actually had a wee dip in the school pool on the sunday afternoon squeeze that in and it just reminds you doesn't it to use those local services um or we might lose them yeah like you know the local barrel race or the pool or whatever it be I think we can safely say the local barrel race is pretty uh, secure with the amount of kids that were entered. It was hilarious. <laughs> we had everything from something that looked not much bigger than a dog being ridden by a teeny tiny cutie going around it. That was adorable. <laughs> I'll have to get Izzy on it in a few years' time. <laughs> <laughs> yep, watch out, Matt. <laughs> um, yeah, brilliant. Definitely recommend. <laughs> Too busy for any other mischief anyway. Yeah, um, absolutely. So what I thought we'd touch on to kick off this week is I'm not actually going to do a whole load of international stuff this week. Um, just one little thing at the end. Um, we'll just stick with New Zealand because there's so much going on at the moment. And I just thought it was a good idea for us to dive into it. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners have heard or seen um, information around this topic, but it's, it's quite big down here in Otago for two reasons, especially North Otago at the moment. So there's a lot of tension currently between local government, i.e. your regional and district councils, and the national government at the moment. Um, the reason behind this is the local governments are still running off a directive that they were given by the previous government to sort out their land and water plans and to sort out their areas of significant interest. There's a whole load of different categories in that, but basically areas that we need to look after um, environmentally. They're under a directive from the previous government to have a plan in place by the end of June and to start implementing it after that. And so they are all carrying on with this, uh, but this is leading to quite a lot of tension because the national government has said that they are rolling back the RMA reforms that were put in place by the previous government. They want to stop on all these procedures that are going on. But currently, all they've done, Emily, is just say, we want to stop there's nothing written mm. into law there's nothing an actual directive um and so while letters are being sent from national government down to the local council bodies the councils are carrying on with this 7th of uh, sorry the end of june date for a finish the problem being 
that that date is really, it's a directive, but it's a technicality and there's no actual consequences for missing that date. So local and regional councils can actually, if they want to go, right, we're just going to pause, we're going to wait, and we're going to see what happens. Um, currently in Otago, they just recently voted to carry on with the land and water plan, the Otago Regional Council, but with the provision that they will have a reassessment in March because of a consultation period that was out and they wanted to run. So it's actually more complicated than just, oh no, we're going to barrel on. It's more, there are legal procedures, there are boxes to tick that they're trying to, to roll through. Um, but this is leaving putting quite a lot of pressure on farmers locally because we just want some certainty and we want to know what's happening, um, what rules and regs are coming in. Is this going to be a whole new bunch of costs put on us to comply with all these regulations? You know, there's some pretty scary numbers being thrown about in different areas, um, Northland and here in Otago, although things are being adjusted in Otago. And farmers are calling, Federated Farmers and all the other farming organizations are calling for just a halt so that we can get some certainty as we move forward, um, but the councils are hanging on to this end of June like like a dog with a bone. So it's quite interesting to see how that's rolling out. Have you come across a lot of this, Emily? Yeah, I'm seeing quite a bit of this, and I think, interestingly, it dovetails at the same time that we're talking, like, we were talking about these RMA reforms, and it's, if we go back a couple of weeks when we are talking about James Shaw and the bipartisanal agreements, um, the reason the RMA was so long acting, so it was in, um, in law for 32 years and 32 days, um, and then the, the um, reforms that Labor rolled out, they survived just 123 days, just some facts for you. Um, and one of the reasons why the RMA, despite its cumbersomeness, despite how challenging it was to get through, was actually bipartisanal at its origins. Um, and so same as the Climate Change Act that James Shaw put through, they really work together. Um, whereas the reforms, you know, they kind of came from this unworldly coalition, David Parker's um, ideals, um, and then there was really no sort of buy-in from the other side of the house. Um, and, you know, whilst there were some sort of sensible diagnoses done by Tony Randerson in the Randerson report, um, about the matters of process and the high level spatial planning, you know, there was some quite, it failed to kind of talk about um, some of the cumbersome processes and some of the developmental outcomes that could come on and farming outcomes that could come through this. And I think that's sort of the nub of it. But yeah, it is really tricky when government have said they're gonna repeal something. We've still got a legal law in place. So local council are still enforced to act on that law without um yeah. even though they know it's going to get reformed and then we have the politics level at local you know we've got left and right wing on both sides you know locally um whilst you know our local yep. councils regional and district don't necessarily align partisanal to the national ones we still have those um sides of the table um and so some of them i think will be seeing this as an opportunity to keep pushing on hard before the um legal requirement comes back and you know the other side of the table probably has more voice and the consultation piece you know has more voice so it is really tricky um but they're also stuck with between a rock and a hard place themselves oh yeah it's hardly easy for the councils too they're trying to keep 
basically what they feel are their legal obligations, even if they are more of a technicality. They're trying to keep to that, but also they're receiving information from above and they're saying, yeah, I know, but you haven't actually changed the rules yet. And we were chatting to the ORC uh, oh, about six weeks ago and he was saying the problem then was the government was only just coming back uh, after the summer holidays and they were just saying, we've got to get on with this. We, we do need plans in place. We need a land and water plan. Um, are we going to wait two to three years for someone to make a decision up north, uh, up, up Wellington, and then and then what? And then we've got to start all this again and rebuild again. Um, one of the key issues as well for us is that we, that when we're lobbying about this, is is we see that the current hierarchy of needs, which is Tamana Otiwai, and the hierarchy of needs is probably going to change or be altered in some way, which will then mean that if they've be built the current land and water plan around that hierarchy of needs, they're going to need to adjust almost all these little tweaks that are going to need to be done, which is a really expensive process. For, you know, it's more staff hours. The staff have already slogged their guts out on this for ages. And whatever you think of the staff at regional and district councils, they, are, they have put the time and the effort into this. And now they're going to have to do it again. That's all that time is paid for by the ratepayer, And that's what we're sort of saying is, can we just put a pause, you know, a couple of months while things get sorted up in Wellington and then we can move on from there without going too far down an expensive track and then having to come back again and do it all again. Um, the, the local government is also governed by the local government legislation and that's, their prerogative in, from that, their directive from that is to work in the best interest of ratepayers. And so that's where a lot of people are complaining. And it's not just farmers who are being affected by this, um, the significant natural areas and all, all the overlays that are being put over by the Waitaki District Council don't just affect farmers, they affect property owners, they affect businesses in towns. You know, there's, there's huge implications for all the ratepayers. And so... At the end of the day, they really do need to work in the best interests of ratepayers. It's quite a tension point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just the Waitaki, like we're seeing this across the country at all levels. And I think um, the other interesting change to the Local Government Act last year was that wellbeing was also added in as a directive. So they have to work in the best interests of ratepayers and then they have the quadruple bottom line equation, the environment, uh, social, cultural, and then wellbeing was also added in. So... Um, their remit has got more complicated as well. Their resources yeah. haven't necessarily changed. Um, as we know, basically elected, <laughs> local elected officials really desire to keep rates as low as possible. Um, and we are seeing some really high rate increases coming through in this next round. Um, I've heard upwards of 20% in some locations, which is just ginormous, um, but potentially necessary to catch up on the infrastructure required. Yeah, the ODT this morning was saying that again. Yeah, rate rises are heading up around Otago. Um, the Dunedin City Council have actually chosen to defer their long-term plan, which is different from what I'm talking. The Waitaki District Council are working on their district plan, but uh, the council in Dunedin have chosen to defer by a year their long-term plan. So their long-term plan will now only run for nine years and they've just put a year's plan, provisionary plan, while they get their head around everything, which I thought was quite 
a sense, seems like a sensible idea. I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but just trying to get your head around things before you just barrel on seems like quite a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. So just to give a bit of heads up to the listeners about what Mavemo is talking there. So a local council, as in your district council or your city council, they have a district plan and that is something that is in basically in their legislation um, and that doesn't necessarily change year to year or on a three-yearly cycle and that's what we use for planning it's got lots of different zones so if you've heard you live in a residential zone or a rural zone um, and what their permitted activities are that's that plan and it'll tell you what you can do most of them are on GIS and you can check them out on your council's website when we're referring to a long-term plan councils every three years have to update their 10-year plan and that um, basically informs what they want to do in the next 10 years. So they put together a budget um, and then their rates are altered, you know, measured accordingly. Um, and this is where we might see wastewater treatment plant plants being built or upgraded, where we might see water um, water treatment plants or water source takes um, being built or upgraded as well. We might see new halls, um, new offices, um, all that sort of infrastructure that are that a council um, owns and manages um, is in there as well as some of their policies um, that they run on a local level and then um, they do an annual plan which kind of just dictates what they're doing in that year um, and just tweaks the rates for that year and then we've got the regional council which sits above that um, and what maybe I'm always talking about with the land and water plan which is linked to the resource management act that's um, a more broad plan that covers the whole region and provides um, the uh, I guess the practical how-tos of lots of the government's environmental policies that we see like the national environment standards the national policy statement for fresh water when we see the um the fencing off waterways, when we see the um, winter grazing intensive plans, when we see the slope, um, all of those things, they come into the regional plan um, and it talks about how we use different types of land, um, how we manage our waterways and so that they don't have over allocation and the, you know, the waterway still has water in it after we've taken our irrigation and our town supply um, and all of those things. So there's different levels of planning at the different levels of government and it can be quite complicated on the surface. That is such an amazing explanation of all the different plans, Emily. I think I need you on speaker <laughs> just to record that and every one of these meetings that I'm attending, just so everyone's on the same page. That was brilliant. Thank you. Um, yeah, and I guess that's that's the thing. There's so many different plans and there's so many different directives coming from the plans. And, you know, for us here locally, the district plan, the implications for us are what can we do on farm, as you were saying. So that's where, you know, mm putting all these overlays on top of farms probably doesn't sound like much to most people but it's all the restrictions that come with them and even if the restrictions aren't there now it's what might be added restriction wise to them going forward that's causing quite a lot of concern and that's why we're just asking for a bit of time and yeah and I think I think it's often difficult um, because like these plans are driven from a good place people want to produce a good result you know they want to make the environment better they want to make the water better um, etc but I was talking to a chap, one of the Otago district councillors, original councillors, sorry, um, and he was just saying, oh, well, it's to protect the environment, it's to protect the environment. And I said, well, you've just rolled out your um, freshwater farm plans and North Otago are first cab off the rank. So we're having those rolled out now. People are starting to uptake them. 
and you know it's replacing everything like you went to grazing consent then it just sets out sort of a timeline of progress that you want to see on your farm to, to reach all these goals environmental goals set mm. by the regional council agreed upon um so the down to earth the day-to-day work is being done so it, i think it, mm. you know there's a lot of panic oh my goodness the environment's going to fall apart if we don't push through on these plans it's not because the day-to-day groundwork is being done by farmers anyway with the the layer of freshwater farm plans etc which are being rolled out in different areas at different rates you know the day-to-day work is being done relax calm down and take the time to make a really good job of the overarching plans and then we're set for the future and like you were saying before about the bipartisan buy-in to hope that these plans will not constantly being refixed and re- you know pulled back and put in place again when every new government rolls in. Yeah, absolutely, because it's so expensive, not just for the government and the ratepayer when those plans flip-flop. The, um, essentially, the ratepayers are paying twice because they pay their rates for it to, when they flip-flop, but then they're also having to stump the cost on-farm for new plans or changes in consents and things like that. So it's really important that we do get these plans well thought out and that they do create the outcomes I think that everybody probably fundamentally agrees on um, at the differing levels of the table. Um, so yeah, I think it, it'll be interesting how it plays out. I know that there's some sticky points in Otago, particularly because we have that legislative requirement to kind of keep pushing on over and above um, the rest of the council, rest of the country, because um, we were sort of being put on a fast track process under Labor. Um, and I guess all we could say is make sure you are talking yeah. to your local federated farmers reps or your beef and lamb and your dairy and seed um, extension managers and your regional managers and get it, making sure that it is be, um, your points are being heard. I'd also suggest going to the local council meetings and um, engaging in their consultation processes because it does actually matter. Um, they do take every single piece of uh submission into consideration and honestly um written does matter if you can submit something in a written form um it's basically um another piece of evidence saying this is what farmers think um and you don't have to be a scholar you can simply say look up what they've got look at the sections that works and say this will not work for my farm because x y and z this one i am in support of because x y and z and it's really good to put both those um those aspects down because it shows that you're a logical human and that you're not just opposing everything which makes it sit, which makes it more workable yeah you're not just yelling into the void oh i hate regulation i don't want any kind of regulation you, you're really working with the progress um i was talking to one of the wonderful staff the feds policy team and she was saying how it's actually really difficult in an area like otago because there's so many different types of farming going on that in fact, the submissions are really, really important because you might miss something. And I was talking to someone the other day and, and they were trying to make sure that you don't have the feedlot type beef. And so one of the regs that's in there would remove that. But it also meant that an old historic sheep yard that was qu- quite close to a river that was still used only, you know, a few times a year, but still used would have to be abandoned and dismantled, you know? And so if you know that 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 would affect you in that way. If you can give that submission, it really helps because nobody can be across everything at all times. So the more information, the better. Yeah, absolutely. And these councils are trying to have, you know, one 
as much minimal and easy to understand regulations as possible, but then they're trying to cover your dairy farmer, your intensive irrigator, and then your high country sheep and beef, all in the same regulation. And it's just not possible. So we really need to know what each type, oh, and your cropping and your horticulture and viticulture, they're all, you know, same thing. So it's really important that we get those nuances um, sort of nutted out and I think it is easier to do it at this stage in those consultation processes so yeah all I could say is engage with the councils both local and regional Mm. um, to help them form a piece of um, regulation that is going to help because I think the boat's passed we can't say we know we're not getting regulation because we've always been regulated and it is actually really important that we do have this regulation so that we can prove to the market that we are looking after the environment that we are sustainable um, and it is really good measurement tools for that as well absolutely couldn't agree with you more Emily Right, we could probably talk on this topic forever, um, but I wanted to bring up the topic of infrastructure and the fast tracking that um, our Prime Minister was talking about, I believe it was about a week ago now, wasn't it? He talked about getting fast track through for getting large infrastructure projects done and the implications that would have on water for us, so dams and the building of dams. so luckily, I happen to have a co-host who's an engineer, so we both had a grand old time on this topic, and I love watching all the historical buildings of the dams videos. Um, and then I keep remembering that's not what I'm actually talking about. Nothing a structural engineer loves more than big hunks of concrete and steel put together. Um, so dams, be they earth, that's obviously a concrete dam, be they earth dams or concrete <laughs> dams, are quite interesting structures. And I went down quite deep on this. And I think the first thing to cover off around this fast track process before we get into the water storage is some people are getting confused anyway, because Labour had a fast track process through COVID and that was mm. to keep people in work and to keep employment going. And what they had was um, the ministers saw the projects and they thought, oh, that's interesting. And the project then went to um, an expert committee for um, basically did the consent go through or not. And it wasn't fa- it wasn't negating the RMA and it was ensuring that there was due process. What the <laughs> national government are proposing is that the ministers say, this project's a good idea, it will go ahead. And then they're sending it to the expert committee to get conditions put on the consent. So there's a real change in the power shift of what the ministers have here um, with the fast-tracking process through the Amazing. RMA. Oh, that's really fascinating, Emily. Yeah, again, yeah, you're great at explaining these things for the lay people like myself. Thank you. Um, so probably before we jump into that, we could say that actually, though, despite the fast-tracking process, building infrastructure is really important um, and we really do need infrastructure in this country to move forward which is why regardless of how um, the fast tracking process kind of falls out it's important that we do get something we do start building this infrastructure which yeah definitely and and you're right we do need infrastructure we need to keep building infrastructure and I think that's something that all the councils are worrying about with their rate rises because otherwise you neglect it for years and then it's a really big cost and you're in Yeah, in a pretty miserable situation. Anyway, New Zealand and its water. So New Zealand receives uh, 550,000 million litres squared of rain per year. So that's nine, uh, to put it into layman's terms, because I was like, that doesn't mean anything to me. It's nine Lake Taupos a year falls on New Zealand as a whole. And the the West Coast, no surprise to anyone, gets a quarter of that. 
And so a lot of the rain that falls on the West Coast just disappears straight on out, unless it falls this side and then it comes down to us on the east. Um, 20% of that evaporates as it lands and the rest flows, lands and flows out to sea, goes into the groundwater, gets taken up for irrigation. There, I looked up water takes and water uses currently. 58% of the water that is taken from our rivers currently is used for irrigation. But that means that the other 42% is used for things like wastewater treatment, water for towns, other businesses that don't require irrigation but still require water. Um, so it's quite quite a lot of quite a lot of water goes for other uses other than farming. And so one of the issues, of course, is and especially with the climate changing and, and adjusting as it is, but also you know just down here we we get very varied rainfalls, don't we? You have a lot of rain at one time of the year. It flows out to sea, and then you have nothing. So. You know, we're lucky here, the Waitaki River is controlled through the dams up, upstream of us. And of course we have regular flow. And so we have regular secure water, but plenty of rivers don't. And so of course the first thing you stop is irrigation and then you stop stock water and then you stop water to people. And then suddenly your river's dry and you've got nothing. Um, the Hakataramia Valley is currently in a horrendous position with their river is almost completely dried up in parts. And that's, I was just talking to someone yesterday and they were saying that they're basically a farm doesn't have any stock water anymore. They've had to offload all their stock. So it's pretty huge implications if our rivers do dry up. So I don't know, you know, heard about the Waimea Dam, but one of the main reasons for them building the Waimea Dam, which is only just recently finished, it's, um, yeah, it finally filled up in January this year, actually. Um, it's been a big project, a bit contentious as well, but the main plan was to be able to manage the water flows of the river. So that's not just to benefit irrigators and tan water supply and other businesses that are taking water, but it's also for the environment. So a lot of people sort of say, oh, well, building these big structures, it's not great for the environment, blah, blah, blah. But actually if you can maintain river flows that is so much better for the environment and the animals and, and fish life living in them because if you're drying up and then you know up and down up and down you can't really sustain life so yeah it's quite an interesting side to it isn't it in my yeah absolutely and so dams really have like a lot of um they have a lot of jobs i guess to do in this country and um they there's a lot they can really help us mitigate climate impacts as well like Ben we were saying as the rainfalls become more severe and more extreme and then the dry becomes longer what we can use dams for is to support some of the flooding risks we have so we can use the dams to basically capture that large amount of rain um, and then basically funnel it off to use in the dry which seems very sensible and we've had some really great examples of this in Canterbury um, over the 2000s and 2010s, um, you know, the off storage, the off river storage in Canterbury has increased by millions of cubic meters. Um, and we've seen really positive outcomes because of that. And then the same thing is sort of projected to happen in Waimea. And the other interesting thing that comes out of this is the significant uh, 
boost to the regional economy these dams can have. So, for example, um, the Nelson-Tasman region, as a result of the Waimea Dam, is expecting to see tremendous benefit in terms of the jobs, health and wellbeing, and future economic development. Um, and they're saying that the region could actually increase its GDP by close to $923 million in the next 25 years. So that's $40 million a year wow. extra money in that region and so you can just imagine how many more jobs are going to be available how much um, how many more high value jobs are going to be there um, and what the household incomes and consumption is um, going to increase by which then just keeps that wheel turning and actually supports uh, increased productivity across the country which is a really important measure for our everyday well-being not just on farm but in cities and all the supporting communities for that rural activity. Absolutely, Emily. And I was just thinking there as you were talking, well, we were talking a couple of weeks ago about food security. You know, that's such a, a an issue. And if we could, mm. you know, have that water flowing down to the Nelson Tasman district, that's water for a whole range of different, you know, foodstuffs that we're growing there. And obviously, you know, the other natural disasters like the hail yep. crops that they had a few years ago, hail on the crops a few years ago. But, you know, it does help to mitigate quite a lot of that climate uncertainty that that whether you, whatever your thoughts on climate change, the climate is is different every year and there's a lot of things that we as farmers have to manage. And so, yeah, anything that can mitigate that, I think is only a benefit, right? Yeah, absolutely. And another example of this exact thing in terms of food security and climate mitigation is the Titai Tokoro Northland Water Trust. Um, and so they've initiated water mm. storage to help bring more high-value horticultural uh, orchards to the area and um, they've got a lot of you know high average annual rainfall but often the resource doesn't fall on the land where it you know can be retained and used and so but they've created these reservoirs so they can manipulate that which is really interesting um, and they're seeing great uptake and they're actually partnered with Iwi on this project so um, yeah really positive results going on up there uh, to ensure that there is water to go around to everyone and you can work through those issues. Uh, on a geeky engineering front, lots of people are concerned <laughs> about the safety of dams and, you know, what might happen if if they fail and things like that. Um, so what is happening in the dam space? And um, in May this year, the country's first post-construction dam safety regulations are coming into effect. And so they're owned by MB, the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. Um, and so that's going to be something that dam engineers have to comply with. And the local councils will be involved in this because that's how they're consented and monitored um, to ensure that they've got a minimum safety regulations for classified dams. And classified dams are just talking about the size of them. So it means that not every Every dam um, is going to be captured by these by these rules. Um, so you know your, your dams on the back of the farm and things like that. They're, they're probably not going to be classified. So basically, a classifiable dam are those meeting the following height criteria. So if they're four meter high and store more than twenty thousand cubic meters of water, or one meter high and store yep. more than forty thousand cubic meters of water, then they'll have to comply. But you know that's that's really capturing the big ones. So, um, yeah, so that's really interesting. So if you're concerned about a dam not being safe, um, those regulations are coming through and most of them will actually already be in play um, because they were sort of written in 2022 
and engineers are required to keep up with best practice. So most of those things will have been coming through and the regulations are just following it up to tidy, to tidy that up. Well, that's very reassuring uh, living downstream from a whole load of dams in Mariso. Good to, good to hear. Let's hope they're all up to spec. Um, yeah, I think it's just really interesting the fact that, you know, like you said, so much rain falls, but it's often in the wrong places. And how can we channel that? And of course, we haven't even touched on hydroelectricity, which, you know, New Zealand's really great at producing that. Um, obviously, that's all that's going on up the valley here. Um, you know, like you can have side benefits if, if the dams are built correctly, generate some power and all the rest of it. So, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how they can be used going forward to try to mitigate what's happening to our rivers. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion this week about um, flooding of rivers in Southland, et cetera. But perhaps if we could manage the rivers ourselves better, not saying there needs to be a dam at the end of every river, but realistically, we've changed the courses of rivers across New Zealand, especially down here, where they used to flow in quite wide floodplains, and we can't just let them go back to natural, completely their natural states because it's not just the farmland that would go. There's plenty of cities uh, that would be completely taken out. So, realistically, we have to manage it. We're here now. We've, you know, made it made a line in the sand. There's flood banks up. So, how can we use these dams as a tool, perhaps, going forward? Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, not every river needs one, not every town needs one, but in some places they are really useful ways to capture excess and use that in times of um, scarcity. And I think the other thing that people are concerned about is the phase out of over allocation of irrigation. And I think these are also another useful tool that could be used um, to help mitigate some of the effects of that. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, everything linked together, you know, your fast water farm plan plus you know, more reliable irrigation, you won't feel the pressure to put so much on when you can, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you're, you're rest assured knowing you're still going to have it when you need it. So uh, finally, should we move on to our final item, Emily? Uh, we were going to talk about West Gold Butter. So I don't know if you've noticed or our listeners have noticed, but West Gold is going viral in the US on TikTok. It's TikTok famous and it's really really cool whoever's in charge of PR and social media at Westgold needs an absolute award because what they've achieved is fantastic so there's loads of videos on TikTok and it's basically American influencers talking about their butter and how much they love the butter the Westgold butter and they're singing its praises it's hormone free it's grass-fed butter they've got some very strange um TikToks out there when they're trying to feed grass to their butter, which I mean, I just think that probably says more about their audience than anything else. But um, yeah, it's it's really great. And then, and then there's been backlash with people saying, "Oh, this is fake butter because why is it so yellow?" And our butter in the US is is that lighter, almost just just off white color. Um, but West Gold would be able to hit back and say, "No, it's our our cows. They're fed our beautiful West Coast grass, which is you know from all that rain that they're." constantly getting and that's what makes it so beautiful and yellow and it's not exciting that New Zealand butter has taken the world by storm. Yeah I think it's really cool and I think that it just shows what good marketing of our amazing products does. Um, we do really stand out from the rest and when we can tell a really great story about our products that often we think isn't actually that great like cool, grass-fed butter 
all the butter in New Zealand's grass-fed. Yes. Oh, hormone-free butter. Yeah. All the butter's hormone-free. Like, to us, it doesn't seem like a big deal. It's how we do business. But I think it's like, you know, when you're traveling and you see something different, you're like, wow, that's epic. That's what these people are experiencing. They've never heard of this. It's not accessible. Um, and like they say, they're actually going to the extremes of that can't be real <laughs> because they've never seen it before. So I think it's pretty awesome. Little old New Zealand punching above its weight. Um, but yeah, definitely check out TikTok. It's pretty hilarious. I even saw people trying to make a cake that looked like the West Gold wrapper out of the butter. And I was like, what are you doing? Brilliant. Yeah, it was hilarious. Those cake shows and those people are quite extreme, aren't they? But <laughs> good on them. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's quite funny. So definitely check it out. We'll be posting a few things over the next week on our social media as well and sharing that around to highlight the great work that they've done over on the coast. Yeah. So thanks for listening along today. If you've watched the video, you'll see we've always had about three different cups of tea. I've <laughs> just noticed your mug keeps changing. <laughs> I didn't think you'd notice that. <laughs> I was like, I lined them all up before. I was like, I hate it when I don't have a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. So definitely oh dear. <laughs> um, we're going to be getting these up on YouTube soon. So if you've checked out the video, you'll um, have seen the procession of tea mugs. Um, but otherwise, have a great weekend. We really appreciate you listening in. Um, and hopefully we might be seeing some of you at the Wanaka Show next week. Thanks for joining us as we chewed the fat on what is front of mind in the ag world this week. We look forward to sharing next week's episode with you. Head to our socials and let us know what you think. We welcome all feedback and would love suggestions on what you want us to dive into next. If you enjoyed the episode, we would really appreciate if you showed your support by sharing, liking and rating our podcast. It really helps us reach new listeners. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.